You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. And good morning, everybody. Hey, it is great to see everybody here today. So glad that you have joined with us. And uh, if we could ask you, if you have a seat or two nearby you, if you could make that available on the end. We have people who have stood the whole service so far. If we could find them a seat, that would be great. So if you just have a seat or two nearby, just get it on the end so that uh, the ushers can more easily locate that. Today we're celebrating Christmas Eve. And I want to say what a, a great appreciation I have for you to include this in all your celebrations today. I see a lot of family members together and friends who have gathered. We're so honored. Listen, I know that there are great churches in our community. You will never hear me say the bridge is the only place. Now, I actually believe that in my heart. But no, seriously, I know there's great churches in our community celebrating this day. And the fact that you have chosen to be with us today, if you're a first-time attender or a guest today, we are so honored to have you with us today. I have been doing a series called Rediscovering Christmas, Good News in Troubling Times. And over the last few weeks, I've been looking at the uh, book of Isaiah concerning some of the prophecies. And today we're going to that passage of uh, Scripture. There's only two Christmas versions in the New Testament. There's the story of Matthew, and then there's also Luke's version. And Luke's version is probably the most familiar uh, one that people know because Charlie Brown made it famous. So anyway, would you stand for the reading of the word? And we're going to go to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the first uh, verse through 15. Let's begin together. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, where he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And so she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit now would help us as we learn about your birth, a new dimension of God's activity towards mankind, towards us, that we would grow and develop and learn value and appreciate, but more importantly, be changed by what this story represents. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as we're looking at this story, I'll just tell you, one of the challenges that I have as a pastor is sometimes people hear this story over and over and over. If you grew up in the faith, you know, you're kind of somewhere around 40 or 50 years, you start to go, I think I've had every version of the, of the birth of Christ preached to me that, might, that is possible. And so it becomes a challenge. 
Uh, you know, a pastor only has two passages every year that he knows he's going to preach. He knows he's going to preach the birth of Christ. And he knows he's going to be preaching the death and resurrection of Christ during the, during the Easter season, right? And so sometimes you are challenged with the fact that people are so familiarized with the story. What, is it, what can I possibly say? And so I want to actually just lay this out for you just to be, when I say rediscover Christmas, because fully understanding the Christmas story has a variety of challenges for all of us in this room. You see, there's some people who have a lack of spiritual interest or even belief. They just go, don't buy the Christmas thing, don't buy the Jesus thing, that's great that it gives you encouragement, that's great that you feel uh, blessed and you know that you value it, God bless you, but I'm not there, I don't buy into that story, uh, it's, it's just another one of those things that we have at Christmas, but no, I just, I just don't accept the Christmas story, really not interested in learning about it, there are people who have that mentality, and so if if they're present and you're preaching, you know, they're kind of like, I just don't buy what you're selling today, pastor, sorry. And I go, that's all right. But see, I also know there's a Holy Spirit that goes around and follows people. He has a way of keeping on talking to us. Have you ever tried to silence that voice in your head and you couldn't? So that's the Holy Spirit. He has a way of just staying on you. But another challenge of the Christmas story is the creation of our own cultural traditions. We all have it. And somewhere along the way, if we're not careful, we, we're more about our traditions that we've created than what the story is really about. I'm not against traditions. You all have traditions wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, your family. You have a way that you celebrate Christmas. And when somebody in the family, young, says, well, why do we do it this way? You have your story of where you got it from and how it was handed off. And some of you, you know, the big debate in your household is, do you open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve or do you have to wait till Christmas morning? I can already tell you how your children will vote. But you know, that's tradition, okay? That's tradition. But like I said, sometimes we're actually more familiar with our traditions than we are the story that allowed those traditions to even come to fruition. We know the backdrop of our traditions, but we don't know necessarily the backdrop of the Christmas story. We just know it from the fact, you know, just the basic facts of what we read this morning. Another challenge is this, familiarity has led to complacency. We've heard it so many times. I'm a pastor's kid, okay? So I grew up, this is, this is the only thing we ever did at Christmas time was Christmas Eve at church and listening to the story. And you're like, hey, you know, you, you see, what is he? I'm 35 or 36, somewhere in the, you know. Anyway, math has never been my strong suit. But familiarity, you know, you're just like, what is there possibly about this story that I could learn that I don't already know? And, and I say that one of the things that you pray is this. God, give me a fresh innocence about what I'm about to say and what I'm about to preach. Give me a fresh innocence so that I'm not just reaching back to cliche phrases and statements that everybody else has already heard them and they're gonna know that that's what I'm leaning into. Help me to have a fresh perspective, a fresh insight. And then the last thing that is a challenge, it's just the unfamiliarity of the context and the culture. One of the challenges of preaching the Bible is, is that we're just so unfamiliar with the culture, and yet you need to take time sometimes to explain the culture, and you go, well, I'm just not into history. Well, without the history, you can't know what you're reading. You see, there's a momentum there, unless you get the backdrop, unless you understand what's being done, because that culture is so foreign to our culture, if you're not careful, you will Americanize the Christmas story. Therefore, you will miss so much of what it is even saying. And if you've attended the bridge, you know this. I always take a segment to do that history, to set it up. And so if you're new to the bridge today, you, this is the first time you're hearing me speak, I don't want you thinking, is this guy just going to keep talking about history? Yep. <laughs> but it all has a point. Because once you clarify the history, once you frame it according to the context, what you read, it's the, the point is so obvious. I'm not coming up with anything unique about those points. The context sets it up that by the time you read the story, you go, oh yeah, that's so obvious. Absolutely, that's what's going on. And so what I hope you to, I want you to do is get your frame of mind ready for right now. Like, hey, let's take a step back. 
Why was the Christmas story such a big deal? You go, well, Jesus was born. Okay, I get that. But why was that such a monumental moment? And why did God choose to announce it the way he did? You know, when you're God, you can announce things in a lot of different ways. Why did he choose to announce it this way? What was he saying? Why did he choose that approach? Why didn't he choose some other approach? That's what we want to look at. So I've got to take you back to the Old Testament, and I'm going to give you a New Testament survey. People pay a lot of money to go to a college to take Old Testament survey for a whole semester, and I'm going to give you that little segment in 10 minutes and not even charge you. And everybody's good with that, right? Let me give it to you, okay? So we're going to go back before, what, and set up the story. So, in 734 BC, this is 734 years before Jesus was born. I preached this a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 714. Ahaz was the king of Judah, and Ahaz was raised in the faith. But when he came of, faith, came of age to be king, he wanted nothing to do with the faith. He actually shut down the temple. And it was disastrous for the people. Their faith had been taken, literally removed. It had been stopped. And he began to utilize other pagan religions. So he not only stopped their way of worship, he introduced pagan worship. And the people were so disillusioned. And his, his rulership was falling apart. And in Isaiah, the people are just going, where's God? Will he help us? We need help. This guy, he's a wreck and he's wrecking us. And Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah's virgin birth was prophesied to him. He prophesied that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin. He was coming. He was giving the people hope that change was on the way. And about 110 years later, 621 BC, in, six, in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verses 1 through 6, this is the last time we read that the Ark and the Covenant is mentioned. After this, it totally disappears from the scripture. And Indiana Jones has been looking for it ever since. And I can tell you, he's not found it. I'm from Indiana. I was born and raised there. I asked him, and he's yet to find it. Now I forgot where I was. But you see, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. There were two angels on top with their, with their, with their heads down and their, and their, and their uh, wings extended. And then there was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which they called the mercy seat. And the, Is and, and the Jewish people... When they would go to the temple, they would describe to their kids inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the angel's wings and the mercy seat. And that space is where God lives. God, God is where those cherubim wings are. He's, he's in that space that leads down to that mercy. That's where God lives. So when, when the Jewish people were asked, where's God? They would say, he's in there and he's on that Ark of the Covenant. That's why they would often take that thing into battle with them because it made them feel invincible. Then a few years later, about 20 years later, six or 15 years later, 606, 605 BC, Babylon conquers Judah and Jerusalem. This is where Daniel is and he's taken captive and he's taken to Babylon. At the same time, the temple articles are also taken to Babylon. It never mentions the Ark of the Covenant, but it does mention the other items were taken. So now at this point, you have a temple and there's nothing in it. Everything that symbolizes God, gone. Even if you went to the temple, there's, there's nothing to use. There's nothing to engage. It's just a building. And then finally... Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. In Jeremiah 25 and 605 BC, Jeremiah announces to the people, he says, not only are you going into captivity in Babylon, I gotta tell you, God says we're gonna stay here for 70 years. And he actually says you need to settle down, get jobs, build your houses, and raise your family. That was not the message they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, God's going to roll in, get us out of this jam, Babylon's going to pay a price, and, and Jeremiah says, actually, it's just the opposite. You need to settle down. 70 years, God has ordered that we stay here. Then on the tail end of that, in 592 BC, so what I want you to see, you see how Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they all knew each other, but they were in different arenas, Okay. They, they were in different locations, but they were all receiving 
the same types of messages from God. And that's why it resonated with the Jewish people because they understood their prophets were hearing from God because they were in different locations, but the message was all the same. In 592 BC, Ezekiel in chapter 8 through 11, he says something that nobody wants to hear. He says, the glory of the Lord has departed. He's left the temple. The ark's gone. The articles that you worship with are gone. Let me tell you why. God's gone. How many know that never produces an amen? Not a message nobody wants to hear. Where's God? You know, you go, well, he's, in this case, it was, he's left. He's gone. And I want to read to you, not all three, not, not uh, all four of these chapters, it's pretty lengthy. I'm going to hit some selected verses so that you can understand the message that was being told to the Israelites at that particular time. So let's go to chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim. Remember the cherubim? And moved to the threshold of the temple. That's a bad sign. He's going, they're going the wrong way. The cloud filled the temple. The last time the cloud filled the temple is when the temple was dedicated. Now the cloud appears again, but this time it's leaving. And the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court. Like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Then you go to verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. As they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. Now we're going to jump to chapter 11, verses 22 through 25. Then the cherubim in the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. So now it's left the temple, it's gone to the gate, it's now left the city. And it says there's a mountain east of Jerusalem and he said God has gone up there. Hmm. By the way, can I tell you, make sure you remind me to tell you the significance of going east. Who will remind me? Okay, then I skip it. I want to, it's all right. Just remind me toward the end of the message, make sure I mention why it was east and why God went up on the hill. Okay, just remember that. Now notice this. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylon, Babylonia in the vision given by the spirit of God. So now he sees the Israelites, the Jewish people. Then the vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. Boy, was that a powerful service. I got a word from God. What? He left. He left, yeah. You know, I always went to the temple. He's not there. Well, where is he? Last I saw, he was up on the east side of Jerusalem, up on a hill. God's left us. That's a depressing day. And here now we are, it's been a couple hundred years, it's almost been 500 years. And I have to set up another cast of characters so that you can value the impact of Jesus' birth. I need to list some characters that are popular inside the Christmas story. And they're Augustus, Quirinius, and Herod. So who, who is Augustus? Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 2. And he's the guy, if you know Roman history, he's the guy that took Rome from being a, a republic, you know, just a, a nation over here, Italy, on the Mediterranean. He's the guy who transformed Rome into a world empire. He had a long reign. Now, if you know anything about that day, the only way that you're going to become a world empire is you're taking out a lot of people. 
and you are forcing yourself in places that nobody wants you. You are pushing yourself. And so he has literally become a world conqueror. He has decided that Rome just doesn't need to be a republic. It needs to be a world empire. And he accomplishes that. Not a good day. Not a good guy. Then it mentions that there is a governor named Quirinius. Not a, a lot of people never, never read about him in the history books, don't know who he is. Let me tell you who Quirinius was. He was a Roman general that was known for his success in putting down revolts. He was Rome's fixer. We're having problems in this nation. We can't get the people under control. Send Quirinius. He has tactics that will convince them. So there's a reason he gets mentioned is the fixer for Rome is just north of Israel. He's poised to fix anything for Rome that needs fixed. If the local government can't solve it, Quirinius gets the phone call. And in that case, it's a bad day for whoever he's dealing with. Then the other character that's in the story, we get it in Matthew 2, is Herod. Herod is the guy, if you remember, inquired of the Magi, go find the, go find the child. And they were shown in a vision, don't go back and tell him, but he figured it out. He did uh, have the, child, uh, the, the male children two years of age and under slaughtered in Bethlehem. And you're kind of like, man, what, who is this guy? Let me, let me back it up. Again, you got to know a little bit of the story here so you can appreciate what's going on. What you have here is this. Herod was actually half Jew. So he had one foot in the Roman world, and he had one foot in the Jewish world. And he really felt because he was half Jew, he could qualify to be their king, the legitimate king, the one that they wanted to be. And he got it going in his head that not only could he be king, he felt that he could also be high priest. He even eliminated and dis disenfranchised a whole segment of people that were qualified from a particular family to be the high priest. He stuck himself in there, and he... And so he got stuck with this. The Jews didn't want him, and Rome was tolerating him. And he had some people that were messing behind his back, causing all kinds of friction. You know who they are. Just never got mentioned in the scripture. He had some people in the arena of his life that kept causing problems with him ruling. Her name was Cleopatra. And Mark Anthony. They kept causing problems for him. So long story short, Rome, Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, the Jewish people, the guy became paranoid of his kingship. Everybody was out to get him. They actually were. But it made him paranoid. And so just the mention that a child had been born and was going to be ordained to be king set him off because he had put down a hundred rebellions and to him, this was just another rebellion because he was saying, I qualify to be their king and I should be their high priest and I'm gonna make this happen whether they want it or not. You got, see, you gotta understand, the guy just didn't wake up one day and go, gee, I just think I'll just kill all the kids. There was a, a momentum of paranoia that had set in and he was defensive. He trusted nobody. By the way, he executed all of his sons. That's how paranoid the guy got about defending his throne. Now, I say that, these are the three people that influenced the story in Jesus' day. Is this, is this the good context to have Jesus come into the world? Your answer would be, you might want to wait for some transitions to happen. You just might wait, you know, you're, Rome... You know, if you could have come when Rome was a republic before it came a world empire, you might have had a shot, but now it's a world empire. You don't want, and Quirinius, he, he's ruthless. You don't, and Herod, he's just nuts. I don't think this is a good day for Jesus to come. And Jesus came anyway. And it sets up the story so well. Why? Jesus says, I don't care how big your mess is, I'm more powerful than your mess. 
Your world can be spun upside down. Your world can be screwed up. Your world can just be going crazy. And Jesus says, that's good. I'm more powerful than the mess that I'm coming into. No mess is greater than Jesus. That's why it says, for God so loved the world he gave. God says, this is a perfect context for my son to go into. Why? Because it's going to be so easy to show the difference between the world and my son. That world is messed up. What a chance for perfection to shine. And so we're going to look at this story rather quickly. Here are the points. See, suddenly now the points become so obvious. Israel says, where is the Messiah? This has been disastrous, and it's getting worse. And yet we are told that our God is the most powerful God. We're told he's the only God. Then explain the mess. So everybody read number one with me. Jesus' birth announced... God was announcing, I'm back. What do I mean by that? The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Notice it's all the people, not just a few. It's everyone. What's the good news for everyone? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. God was saying, I've watched, and you need a Savior. So, I'm coming to you because you can't get to me. You don't even have a place to do this. You don't don't even have the means. They had the temple back then, but remember, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. They had the building, but they didn't have the symbol that said God was there. But they had the building. It was always a quandary. How do we get forgiveness if we don't know that God's here? And now God was saying, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back through my son, Jesus. Number two, read it out loud. Jesus' birth announced, he came back, and why was he coming back? He was coming back to save, because it says, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those to whom his favor rests. That statement is read so often, everybody, and you go, what does it mean? I don't know, it just means peace. Peace where? Because if I look in my world, it doesn't look too peaceful. There are more wars happening today than ever before in history. So what, what, where, so, and it says there's favor. So where's the peace, where's the favor? What are we talking about? What God was saying was this, there's a war between man and God. And God says, truce. I'm calling the war off. Now how many know it takes two people to have peace? Come on, you know that, right? And God says, I'm putting peace on the table, but let me tell you how we can have peace. Because God says, you have judgment coming your direction for the wages of sin is death. God says, there's a judgment hanging over your head. We can have peace, but we got to deal with the judgment that is over your head because the wages of sin is death. And God says, in the negotiations, I have a way we can solve that. God says, you can escape judgment if you will accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you will take him as your Messiah. God says, I not only cancel the war, I cancel, I cancel the judgment that is struck against you for what you have done in that war. God says, peace. And then he says this, and not only will I cancel the fight, the battle, the judgment that is set against you, God says, I will favor you. Wow, you mean I can start flourishing in my life? God says, I'll bring you favor. It's not, how many know, when the war is over, you got to rebuild. God says, not only will I cancel this, I will help you rebuild your life. I will bestow favor. 
Favor on, who, on, on those his favor rests. God says, I'm then for you, but we gotta handle the judgment and the debt that you owe. See, so many people don't wanna handle that part of life. And God says, oh, you got to. Or I can't help you. Not because I don't want peace. You don't want peace. And that, my friend, is on you. God has made a way. And everybody said amen. amen. Number three, read it out loud. Jesus' birth announced that God had, he had come to restore broken lives. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Let me tell you why they were terrified. By this time in history, shepherds had drifted into being the lowest social order in their society. They were so untrusted, they were so crooked, they were so deviant. If they witnessed a crime, their testimony was unacceptable in court, not because they didn't see the crime, but because of their occupation. They considered them incapable of telling the truth. So even if they saw a crime, they never got to testify. They were discounted. They were the bottom at this point in time. Now, there's a time in history where shepherds were glorified and lifted up, which is kind of cool because it says that Jesus was the great shepherd. So in one sense, he's the shepherd that we picture him to be. And the other side of it is he's looking at the shepherds and saying, I'm also one of you. And I've come to change how people see you. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. How many know that was probably the favorite line the shepherds heard right there? I bring you good news because they were probably thinking, this is when we get wiped out as an occupation. Now look at this. They hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they seen him, they spread the word concerning what had, happened, what had been told about the child. And all who heard it was amazed, were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Do you see that in one night, Jesus restored the, or God restored the credibility of the shepherd? Now, everybody is believing what the shepherds say. In one night, God said, I can restore you. Sometimes in life, we make decisions that we cannot come back from. Sometimes we make decisions that carry consequences and we can get ourselves into a, we beat ourselves up. How could I have been so dumb to do that? How could I have been so crazy? Why did I, why did I turn on my family? Why did I turn on my husband? Why did I turn on my, my, my wife? Why did I turn on my kids? Why did I turn on my church? Why did I turn on my friends, my employer? The list goes on and on. Sometimes we make decisions that later on we play out and we go, what was I thinking? And we enter into this mental judgment of beating ourselves up. Because we now have come to our senses, but we have come to our senses at a time when the consequences cannot be undone. It has happened. It has occurred. The damage has been done. Violations have happened in life. And you're kind of, you feel like, where do I go? Let me tell you something. Restoration doesn't mean he gives you back what you lost. Restoration also means he gives you a new life and a new trajectory and a new momentum. Sometimes God says, why don't we just start over? Anybody in here ever feel like that was a good option? Yeah, you. God, I made such a mess, I can't go back and fix it. God said, that's all right. You have to live with the consequences. But how, how about we start afresh and anew today? And that's what he did for the shepherds. He restored them. He gave them a new start. A new trajectory. So all of a sudden now, the whole city thinks they have credibility. They started to believe that they actually saw what it is that they saw. Let me tell you, God is a God who has the ability to restore your life 
There's no doubt there's people in this room. I don't know your story, but you know your story. And you'd, you'd give anything to start over. Can I tell you, Jesus offers that to you. But you got to cancel the judgment. It's hard to start when there's a judgment over your head. That's why we say, Jesus, forgive me. It's not anybody else's fault. It's my sin. I'm the one who screwed it all up. I'm asking you to come into my... You can't start fresh without canceling the judgment. Otherwise, the judgment is always chasing you. And that takes us to this last, last point. Number four, read it out loud. Jesus' birth announced that it was a new day for all mankind. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There's a debate among the biblical scholars whether these magi were Jewish people or not. Do they have some kind of Jewish descent? And there's cases made in both directions. I'll give you my opinion, okay? Notice what they said. They said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They did not say, where is our king? See, I watch those detective shows too. You listen to what they say and then you begin to parse, why did you say it that way? I noticed you chose this. And they, and they know the follow-up questions based on how somebody answered the question. Sometimes in how they answer, they're confessing. And here it is. If they were Jews, they would have said, where is our king? But instead, they acknowledge that this is the king of the Jews. So I don't believe that they were Jewish. But notice this, the activity of God had been revealed to them in a faraway land and they made the trip. God was not just coming to save the Jewish people, he was coming to save mankind. And then you have this when Jesus was dedicated later in Luke chapter 2, Jesus was taken by his parents to be dedicated. And it, said, it was Simeon was part of that process. He was a prophet. And this is what he said when he held the, the child Jesus. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He was saying, I'm a Jewish man who is standing in a Jewish temple holding a Jewish child who have Jewish parents, and he's come for the Gentiles. That was a bold statement. Jesus' birth is an announcement that it was a new day for all mankind. That's you and me. Now, how many remember what you were supposed to remind me of at the end of the sermon? Yeah, the east. Why did the glory of the Lord go east? Why not north? Why not south? Why not east or west? What, why east? If you look at a map, you'll see that the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. It's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. If you go to John, it's where you see John records Jesus' prayer in the garden. Jesus was God's presence coming back. The spirit of God's presence had gone up on that hill. Jesus prays in that garden up on that same hill. And he's saying, God's back in the form of Jesus, his son. Many of you have a Christmas tree Variety of objects go on top. Most of the time, it's usually an angel, symbolizing the angels in the story. Some people, it's a star, symbolizing the star. How many, let me, a little poll. How many star people do we have? Yeah. 
Who are the angel people? See, look at that. See, are we? Okay. And you know, my hope is this. When you get an opportunity to walk back in your house and you see that star and the angel, you say, what does it symbolize? Most people go, oh, it symbolizes Christmas story. You know, the angel show and the star show. No, 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 no. I want to redefine that for you. When you see your Christmas tree and you put an angel up there and you have a star up there, you're saying this is how God announced he was back. When your kids or grandkids ask you, why do we put a star? Why do we put an angel up there? You know what you need to tell them? This represents the day that God said, I'm back. And I'm back through my son Jesus to change your life. Rediscover Christmas, man. It's a powerful story. One of hope, one of healing, one of restoration. And everybody said amen. amen. I'm gonna ask you to remain seated if you would and bow your heads this morning as we wrap up the service and we prepare to go to communion. There might be those of you here this morning who recognize that you need Jesus. It's not my intent to do something in a way that embarrasses you or puts you on the spot or on display. But if you need a new start in life, this is what Christmas represents, a new start, a fresh start. And in just a second, I'm gonna have everybody just say a prayer. And a lot of people in this room have already accepted Jesus. But for some of you, as you say that prayer, you're going to feel Jesus come into your life. I'm just preparing you. When he comes in, you just know it. And so everybody together, out loud, say this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I come to you a sinner taking full responsibility. There's a judgment against me. And I'm asking you to cancel it. I'm asking you to come into my life as my Lord and my Savior. Heal me. Restore me. Refresh me. Save me. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, can we just give the Lord a clap? Come on, thank Him for what He's done this morning. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to take the communion cup and the bread that was given to you when you came in. And I know in some churches they say, hey, if you're not a member of our church, you can't take communion. And I understand and I respect those things. But here at the bridge we say, no, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we invite you to be a part of having communion with us. And I'm gonna ask everybody to stand, if you would, at this time. And before we take communion, Pastor Malik's going to lead us in a chorus. Come on, sing it now. And oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Christ the Lord. represented in the Jewish world, it represented God's presence. As followers of Christ, it represents now the body of Christ, His presence. For 30 seconds, can we all just give Him praise 
for being a God who came to us in reality, not symbolically, but literally. Come on, everybody, conversational voice, the voice you use to talk with. I want you right now, all of us, give him praise for being a God who has come among us. Let's lift our voice now. Jesus, we take this bread representing your body. We eat it together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said amen. Let's eat together. Now before we take the cup, the cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. What did that shed blood do? It canceled the judgment against you and against me. Can we, 30 seconds, can you praise him for canceling the judgment that is set against you because of sin, that he canceled it? Come on, lift your voice, 30 seconds now. Lord Jesus, we now take this cup representing your blood. We drink it together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said amen. Let's drink together. Hallelujah. Come on, let's sing that chorus one more time. Oh, come, let us adore him. Come on, lift your voice one more time. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. I know the ushers will be helping to pick some things up here in a minute. But at this time, we're going to just get ready to wrap up the service with a candlelight time. And I'm going to ask the ushers to come. They'll be lighting the candle on the end of each row. We're going to ask you to pass that down to those who are next to you. We'll be singing it. We're just going to sing Silent Night. We'll just do the song, first verse twice. We'll just do that. But before we start this, I'm just going to say this. I hope you recognize the significance of what you're celebrating this Christmas season. It's transformative. What God is doing, has done, and is still doing. I'm going to ask my wife to come and join with me. Pastor Malik, would you lead us? Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright Round yon virgin, mother and child Holy infant, so tender
I know I say this every year, but when I say it, I mean it. My wife and I wish you the merriest of Christmases. We're so honored to be here doing life with all of you. I was talking to Pastor Austin earlier this morning during the first service. We now have as many kids and youth in this church as we did when we first arrived, the first total attendance of the church. Now we have that many kids and now we have that many young adults and youth. We live in a day when people say the younger generation isn't interested in the faith and I say you need to come to the bridge. Jesus is changing a lot of lives and when I look out here I see so many testimonies and you know what? I think the story is still being written. I don't think we're on the last chapter. I usually have a blessing that I say at the end of every service, but today I'm going to say it, but I rewrote it. And I'm going to ask you if you would just, I know you got, I know you got fire in your hands. <laughs> so be real careful with it. But this will be the dismissal, this blessing. I bless you in the name of the Lord. May, he bl may the blessing and the goodness of the Lord be upon you this Christmas season. Let the lost rejoice because your Savior's born. Let the sick and the affirm rejoice because your healer is born. Let the captive and addicted rejoice, your deliverer is born. Let those who are in darkness rejoice, your light is born. Let the lonely rejoice for Emmanuel, God is with us, is born. Let the conflicted and tormented rejoice because your Prince of Peace is born. Let the impoverished rejoice because your provider is born. And let the heartbroken rejoice because your counselor is born. May he fill you with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, the determination of the magi, and the peace of the Christ child. Let every kindness come with every gift and good desires with every greeting. And may the revelation of his son, Jesus, be your greatest gift today, tomorrow, forever. May the blessing and the goodness of the Lord be upon you this Christmas season. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, God bless you, and have a great day.